This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'm going to tackle a question that I've had for several years now. It's been a very good study, and I hope it's helpful. I'll be answering the question, why are God's chosen people called Semites, Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews? Why do we have all those different terms for the people of God? Before I get into that, I want to remind you again, if you have any questions for me, any comments, any thoughts, feel free to drop me a line at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. I'd love to hear from you. And also, a few episodes ago, I mentioned that I was going to do an entire episode on things that are on my desk. And I realized maybe the better way to approach those things is just to chip away at them a little bit as sort of introductory remarks before I get into the main focus of each episode. So here's something that's been on my desk for actually a few months. I've been thinking about just coming back to it. And it's an example of what is wrong with the world, (laughs) this modern age. Podcasts, YouTube channels, there are just so many things that are in today's culture focused on self-promotion, trying to build an audience. And there's uh, an appeal to pride, your own pride. I know of a couple that spent a lot of money outfitting a van so that they could travel around the United States and live the van life. And they were going to start a YouTube channel and live off of the income from the ads on the YouTube channel. But it failed terribly. They spent a bunch of money and then they didn't make any money because there are lots of other people doing that very thing. And to be honest, the couple that I met, they didn't seem to be like they'd be very good at doing that, appealing to people who would watch their lives. So there are these appeals to pride that come with the territory, and I'm very guarded about it. Let me just say a little bit about that. One of the things that the Lord has taught me over the years is that the fruit is up to him. My role is to be a good steward of what he's entrusted to me, but the growth of whatever I'm involved in, the fruit of it, the results of it, they're all up to him. And if he called me to do a lot of self-promotion, I would do it because that's what he called me to. But he hasn't called me to promote myself. He's called me to generate these talks and share with the people that he might call into listening to what I have to say. That's a good way to go through life is to let the fruit be up to the Lord. And we just need to abide and be good stewards. So I got an email a while ago, and it's from a team... It's a podcast hosting group called Wisdom, and I'm going to mention them here. It's called the Wisdom, I got it from the Wisdom Talent Team. Apparently, Wisdom is a company that was going to bring a lot of podcasts together so people that are interested in hearing about wisdom could go there and find podcasts that appeal to them. So I got an email from one of their salespeople, I guess it's sales, and The title of it is Top Badge for Ask for the Ancient Paths. There in the title of the email is kind of an appeal to my pride or my desire. Oh, I could have the top badge. Okay, so 
this lady, I won't mention her name, she writes, Hey, would you please claim your podcast on wisdom? I'm impressed by your pod and want your unique voice on wisdom. The Wisdom app is a great way to grow your listeners while engaging in conversations that matter. Some of the things that she's written have been written in bold. Grow your listeners and engage in conversations that matter. That's in bold. Okay, more about wisdom. Uh, We're venture-backed, here to stay, and doing things no one else is doing. We know podcasting. We love the intimacy, and we want to make podcasting social. I think I may be doing an ad for wisdom here, but you'll see why I'm talking about this in a minute. So she says, transform your listeners into a community. Let them share, like, and comment on what you share. Answer their questions. Join us. It's free and we need you. And she continues, our goal is not to have every podcast on wisdom, to have the wisest podcasters. That's their goal. We want you and ask for the ancient paths on wisdom. Can I please send you a link so that you can claim your podcast and start growing your listeners? Sincerely. And she signs her name. So I wrote back and I was a little concerned about this. I could see this coming. So I wrote back. Hello. This sounds very interesting. How many of my podcast episodes have you listened to? Which ones do you appreciate most? Many thanks. Michael Cantrell. I could see this coming. Here's the response. I asked her, which of the podcast episodes have you listened to? And which ones do you really appreciate? And she replies, thanks for getting back to me. The next step is to fill out this quick form to claim your podcast and get a top badge. We're excited to have you on board and can't wait to hear your voice on wisdom. If you experience any issues, please contact us at this email address. (laughs) So I asked her, You know, what have you listened to? What do you like? And just absolutely no response at all. So I wrote back, and I hope this is okay. (laughs) Your reply proves what I suspected. Even though wisdom claims to focus on building community, you don't seem to read the emails from people you've invited to participate. I don't think you're aware of the content of my podcast. (laughs) And then I wrote, you might want to rethink your vision and mission. Honestly, I don't think it's wise for me to become a part of such a group. (laughs) Given all this, I see no need to participate. Please remove me from your mailing list, Michael Cantrell. And I will say that they apparently removed me from their mailing list because I haven't heard from them since. But to me, this exemplifies what's wrong with so many things in the world. They're appealing to my desire to grow my listeners, to have a voice, and they call themselves wisdom. And they're talking about building community, but they don't even know me. They don't even care about me. They haven't listened to what I recorded. They haven't replied to my emails in a personal way. And so I really do feel like, why would I participate in a thing like that? If that's the foundation of the work that they're doing, I don't want to participate in it. Though I would like to grow my listener base, and so I just ask you, if you like what you hear from me, mention it to some other folks, because I really want what I do to be a blessing to people. I don't want to see people as a source of fame or bragging rights or pride for me. I really want to be a blessing to people, and I want to help other people do what God is calling them to do, and I hope the things that I share are an encouragement. 
Okay, so now we're going to get into my talk. And again, it's titled, Why Are God's Chosen People Called Semites, Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews? This discussion is a result of that question that I had for many years, as I said. Why all these different names? Where did they come from? And I had a pretty good idea, of course, about a few of them. I imagine people listening here have some idea why they're called Israelites or perhaps Jews, but Hebrews and Semites, that may be a little less clear, a little more obscure. Why are there so many different names for the same people group? And then why do we have this word anti-Semitism that now means anti-Jewish, being against the Jews? It reminds me, actually, I was speaking to some pastors. I won't mention the country. It's a European country. And these pastors are part of a Pentecostal denomination. And I was talking about Pentecost, Pentecost in the Old Testament and Pentecost in the New Testament. And one of the pastors, the lights went on. He said, oh, I never knew why we were called Pentecostals. (laughs) Like, okay, yeah, that's the name of your denomination. And now you know why it's called Pentecostals. So this question It's not merely an intellectual question. As I've gone through finding the answers, I see that the answers help us to see how God has been working among his creation and his people. So as we look back in time through the scriptures, we can see more about how God has been at work. And the answers to these questions show us a line of descent from the fathers of the faith to us. And the answers ultimately aim us toward a living faith in the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So we're going to talk about Semites, Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews. So we'll start with Semites. And the name Semite comes from Shem, the oldest of the three sons of Noah. In Greek and Latin, Shem becomes Sem, because neither Greek nor Latin has any way of saying that sh sound of the Hebrew name. So, sem. And that's also true, actually, in the Russian Bible, even though they do have the sh sound, the name is sem. So, semites would be people who are descended from Shem, one of the three sons of Noah. Now, it's interesting that this term was first used only in the 1700s. And it was by historians in Germany. And it's a terminology for the races that descended from Shem and a way to define Semitic cultures of ethnic, cultural, racial, or linguistic groupings. Semites, Semitic, Semitic cultures. But it's not a term that's really used anymore for those things. And nowadays... This terminology is mostly used in linguistics. Of course, we have anti-Semitism, which somehow has now become to mean anti-Jew, but back in the 1700s, it just meant a family of cultures, a grouping of linguistic characteristics. So this term Semite is a fairly modern construct, and it is not used in the scriptures to refer to any people group Except I will say that in the NIV, they have a heading that talks about the Semitic people. So when you read the heading, you could think, oh, the Bible uses the word Semite to talk about the Jewish people, but it doesn't really. That's just a heading that was put in by modern editors. 
So that is Semites coming from Shem, one of the three sons of Noah. The next term is Hebrew. And we're going through in time, actually. Shem is mentioned first. And then Hebrew, this word Hebrew is derived from the name of Eber, who is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, verse 21. Eber was a descendant of Noah's son, Shem. And remember, there were three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In Genesis chapter 10, it says that Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. And Eber was an ancestor of Abraham, or Abram. So in Genesis chapter 11, it gives the line of descent from Shem to Abram, and that list includes Eber. And in Genesis 14, verse 13, the scriptures specifically refer to Abraham, or he was known as Abram at the time, as Abram the Hebrew. This is where the name Hebrew comes from. It's a descendant of Eber. And Abram was a descendant of Eber, Abram the Hebrew. Genesis chapter 14 recounts the story of Abram when he saved his nephew Lot from this alliance of kings that was led by Kedor Laomer. I do want to look at this a little bit because as we study why was Abram called a Hebrew, it's really interesting to see that just as he's identified as a Hebrew, this event happens as Abram is gone out to battle and he's defeated these kings. As Abram comes back from the battlefield, two kings meet him. One is the king of Sodom and the other is the king of Jerusalem or the king of Salem. I'll read this from Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. So the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abram, and the king of Salem, Melchizedek, comes out, and he brings with him bread and wine. I think there is certainly an echo there, or a prefiguring of the communion elements. And it says here in verse 18 that Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek blessed Abram. And he said to Abram, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. That's what Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem, did and said. He brought bread and wine, and he spoke blessings over Abram, and he blessed the one true God. And Abram's response was to give Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he had. Abram responded to this message, this gift of bread and wine, and the message of blessings coming from God to him and going to God because of what God had done. And then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram then said to the king of Sodom, remember Abram had given a tenth of everything to Melchizedek, and now he says to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to Jehovah, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Wow. 
Abram, man, his faith is strong. He responds in faith to what Melchizedek has said to him. Remember, this is Abram, the Hebrew, before his name is changed to Abraham. And he responds to the king of Sodom saying, I'm not going to participate with you. I don't want you to be able to say that you ever did anything that enriched me. And so we see that Abram left polytheism and he followed the God who made the universe. He followed the God most high. And Abraham and his descendants were then known as Hebrews, the descendants of Eber. All right, so now we move on. The next is Israelites. We've come to Abram, Abraham. Now we're going to talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, his son Isaac, and his grandson Jacob. And the Israelites were descendants through Abraham's son Isaac and Abraham's grandson Jacob. Most listening will know this story. Jacob was given the name Israel, which means one who strives with God. Isn't that an interesting thing? That he's named by God Israel. His name is Jacob, but he is called Israel. And that was a result of this struggle that's described in Genesis chapter 32. And it's this struggle between Jacob and a being. It's a man who was likely an appearance of the pre-incarnate Messiah. The story doesn't really say who this was, but we see Jacob's response to this struggle that he has with this man all through the night. First, I want to look in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob's faith. What is the faith of Jacob? For all his faults and all the troubles, (laughs) Jacob was a man of faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, were these men of faith. And in Genesis chapter 32, verse 9, Jacob prays, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Jehovah, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. That's a really beautiful prayer. You are the God of my father, the God of my grandfather, you are the one who said to me that I should go and that you would make me prosper, and I am unworthy of all that kindness that you've shown. Jacob had faith, and Jacob has this struggle with a man or an angelic being or a pre-incarnate Christ, and he's named Israel, but why was this a good struggle? Why was it something that we would look to and say, well, his name was changed as a result Remember, he was also struck on the hip so that he walked with a limp after that as this physical sign of this struggle that he had. So looking at what Jacob said when he had this struggle, Jacob replies, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? And Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with men, and you have overcome. And then Jacob says, Please tell me your name. But the man replied, Why do you ask my name? And then the man blessed him there. And therefore Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Jacob was struggling with the Lord, And he said, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. The man says, okay, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to change your name because you have overcome. You have fought hard 
to enter into the blessings that come from God. Amen. And after this, the 12 tribes who descended from Jacob's 12 sons collectively became known as Israelites. They became known as the children of Israel, or generally just Israel. So it's the 12 tribes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes now are called Israelites. Israel's family, Jacob's family, moved to Egypt, where his son Joseph was second in command to Pharaoh. Remember this story. And in Egypt, the Israelites grew to uh, actually more than 2 million people. And then they left Egypt and they migrated into Canaan, the promised land. And they were moving there under the leadership of Moses and Joshua. That's the whole story. The Israelites came out of Egypt and entered into the promised land. And when they got in the promised land, they were ultimately led by kings. We're going to start heading toward why are the people of God called Jews? After the Israelites came to the promised land, ultimately they had kings, Saul, David, Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two parts, with ten tribes in the northern kingdom, that was called Israel, and two tribes in the southern kingdom, that was called Judah. Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, actually where Melchizedek was from originally, Jerusalem was the capital of Judah in the south. So I'll say it again. The kingdom is divided. The northern ten tribes is Israel. The southern tribes are Judah, the kingdom of Judah. And the capitals are Samaria in the north and Jerusalem in the south. And the term Jew was derived from the name of one of Jacob's sons, which was Judah. He was the head of this tribe ultimately, into which Jesus was born. The first biblical use of the term Jew to refer not just to descendants of Judah or to an inhabitant of the southern kingdom of Judah, which actually consisted of two tribes, the tribes of Judah and of Benjamin. The first use of this term Jew in the scripture to refer to all of the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, that occurs in Esther chapter 2. And it says, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. So here we see that Mordecai is called a Jew, which you might think was from the tribe of Judah, but he's actually from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took all the Jews from Judah captive, but that was after the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken captive by the Assyrians. And they became what was known as the lost tribes of Israel. These ten tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom, with its capital in Samaria, they're taken captive by the Assyrians and they're dispersed into the surrounding nations. That's in Second Kings chapter 17. These ten tribes became, as I said, known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. However, they weren't all lost because some of those tribal members remained in Israel, the land that had been emptied out for the most part, and some of them moved south into Judah, and that's in Second Chronicles um, 15 and 35. As an aside... I've heard people talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel, but James, when he writes his letter, he writes, 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. So they weren't lost to him. (laughs) There still are descendants of all twelve tribes out, scattered among the nations. But back to our topic at hand. When the Assyrians took all the Israelites, the people of the northern kingdom, when they took them away, the Assyrians resettled Samaria. And it's resettled by not only Assyrians, but lots of different people groups. Later, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded Judah. That was in 586 B.C. And Jerusalem's destroyed. Many of the Jews were taken into exile in Babylon. And when Persians conquered Babylon in 538, the Persian king Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to their homeland, rebuild the temple, and many Jews from several different tribes returned to Judah, to Jerusalem and to Judah. After the Babylonian exile, this term Jew replaced Israelite as the most widely used term for those who survived the exile. After Jerusalem was rebuilt, Judah was ruled by the Greeks, and then the Egyptians, the Syrians, and then the Romans. So that brings us down to New Testament times. Now, there is a Hebrew word, Yehudi, uh, translated as Jew, occurs 76 times in the books of the Old Testament, 11 times in Jeremiah, where it describes Judeans, Yehudi, uh, twice in Second Kings, where it describes Judeans, and, and once in Zechariah, where it may describe both Judeans and Israelites. And then there's a related term, Yehudain, which occurs in the books of Daniel and Ezra. Now, originally the term Jew referred to members of the tribe of Judah, but later it described anyone from the kingdom of Judah, and this would include anyone from the northern kingdom of Israel who moved down into Judah. Also, this term of Jew referred to anybody who returned from the exile to Judea, and they were called Jews regardless of what tribe they came from. Now, we come to the New Testament. In the New Testament, the words Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews are used interchangeably to describe the descendants of Jacob. And this is the case today even. The words Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews are really used as synonyms in many ways. And although the terms Hebrew and Israelite continued in use into the New Testament period, by then the term Jew was more commonly used. As we know, when he died, the Romans referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews. It has been said that Hebrew is the culture, Israelite is the race, and Jew is the religion. Uh, Though I think that these terms really overlap a lot more than that. All Israelites were supposed to be Jews, but that's not the case today because now Gentiles have even converted to the Jewish religion. So now there is not only the Jewish religion, but also people who are Jews by blood, but may not be religious at all, may be atheists for that matter. And now we come to the New Covenant. And as often the case, many circumstances, as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we move from the physical to the spiritual. We move from the law to the spirit. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes an extraordinary claim. Galatians 3 verse 6, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe 
are children of Abraham. That's amazing. The children of Abraham now are all who live by faith, not necessarily any who are blood descendants. It is no longer the bloodline that determines who is a child of Abraham. Some who are related by blood are no longer the children of Abraham. That's got to be pretty offensive to those who consider themselves children of Abraham, but Jesus had this conversation in his earthly ministry. He said, if Abraham were your father, you'd believe in me. So I guess we can say now many Jews are not really children of Abraham because they don't live by faith in the Messiah. Muslims consider themselves to be children of Abraham, but they are not because they do not live by faith in Jehovah, the one true God. There is a very clear, irreconcilable difference between the law and faith. And we are to live by faith. And if we live by faith, then we are true children of Abraham. So to wrap things up, it'll take a little while to go through this, but let's look at Galatians chapter 3. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul is trying to persuade the Galatians not to go back to legalism. They had come to faith, a true faith, but then they were falling into legalism and trying to gain their righteousness by their actions instead of by believing. Galatians chapter 3 is a clear statement of what Paul is trying to persuade them of and what we need to listen to. And all through this section, Paul contrasts observing the law or believing. He contrasts living by the law or living by the Spirit. So I will read it and just listen for these contrasts. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish that after beginning with the Spirit, you are now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law, or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are the children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, that all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything that is written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God because of the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the word says, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Amen. This contrast between observing the law and living by faith, receiving the Spirit, 
or trying to please God by human effort. And it's all tied up with being children of Abraham, of sharing in the faith of Abraham, receiving the blessings that were promised to and through Abraham. He was a descendant of Eber. He's a Hebrew. And through him come the Israelites and the Jews. And now we are the children of Abraham. Our spiritual lineage goes all the way back to that man of faith. And we, as Gentiles, have been adopted into this family of God. It's a family, and we've been adopted. We're heirs in this family of God. Our loving Father is the God above all other gods. Our brother and friend and Lord is Jesus, the Messiah. And we are bound together in this family by the Holy Spirit. And I'll close with what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Thank you.